When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's here, too. And this is Stuff You Should Know, Postmodernism Edition. I'm strapping on my ice skates. I know. Chuck, I was thinking about it. This may very well be the most difficult topic we've ever tackled. Is this hard for you too? Oh, yeah. It's hard okay. for everybody. It's hard for everyone. Oh, good. It, yeah. No, it's very <laughs> difficult. It's really hard to define. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to mischaracterize things yeah. as postmodern and, and um, lump stuff in, even though it is technically that. And worst of all, it's really easy for people to be snobby to other people about what is or isn't postmodernism. So it's going I, yeah. to be it's going to be rough. I think that's why I'm a little not nervous because who really cares, right? It's just a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, just uh, unnerved because philosophical movements, art, art movements. Uh, that have fuzzy boundaries. Uh, mm-hmm. It's tough for me, always has been. I deal a little bit more in the concrete. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's going to be interesting, you know, especially when, you know, you look at some more, I don't know about cynical, but just sort of straightforward definitions of, like, what is postmodern art? And most people will say, like, well, it's art that happened between 1955 and 1970 and right now. Wrong. Well, it's not wrong. It's an era. Like, that's where it gets slippery. Uh, right. Because art is defined by eras. And uh, even though people did things in the different eras that thematically and stylistically apply more to other eras, mm-hmm. uh, like, would you call The Godfather a postmodern film? No, but it was made in the postmodern film era. Precisely. So, uh, the differentiation here, then, is that... <sighs> <laughs> it, it begins. <laughs> the differentiation here is the postmodernism that we're talking about is not just art. It's not just film. It's not just architecture. It's not even just philosophy. We're talking about an entire worldview that all of us collectively share. Most of us, I should say. I think, you know, the West, you could say, if you want to call it that, shares this this culture, postmodernist culture. Post-World War II, generally. Yeah, some people put it at the 70s, some people put it at the 60s, other uh, other people even go as late as like basically 1979, 1980. But it's not just an art movement. It's not just a type of film. It's not just a type of literature. It's it's a it's a way of looking at the world that in turn shapes how we create or exist or live in or deal yeah. with the world. And we do it together. It's culture. But the reason it's so fuzzy, Chuck, compared to other things is because it's it may still be going on right now. And if mm. it isn't still going on right now, it ended so recently that we're still so wrapped up in the turbulent effects of it that it's hard to see which way's up, down, sideways. So it's really difficult to nail down. But it's really fun to try, I've found. And it's the kind of thing where, like, they probably won't put a a, a year marker until 30 years from now yeah. on what post postmodernism is, which we'll get to. Yeah, totally. And, and even then, it take you know, it, it's not a, a cut-and-dried thing because of— a, a, change like this happens over the course of a decade or two. 
Yeah, or or more even for or sure. More. And I I would posit that we're in those decades of change right now. We're in a transition period between postmodernism and what's next. I and I think that's one reason why everything is just so uncomfortable right now. In addition to a pandemic being dropped on top of us <laughs> at a really uncomfortable time. And I would also say after reading a lot about this stuff, uh I think art, visual art, like let's just say painting. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot more to it than that, but as opposed to literature and film, mm-hmm. I think the boundaries there are a little more rigid than in other in things like literature and film, yeah. where they draw demarcation lines between pre-modern, modern, and post-modern eras mm-hmm. a little more succinctly. Uh, like technically, anything made these days would be considered postmodern art, uh, just by the virtue of the fact that it's now, whereas you would not say a film is necessarily. Right. 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 Um, so, I quit. No, you did great. We're doing great. Just hang in there, man. Just just double up the strength of your fingernails and claw in further, okay? Cause I we just can feel the this. emails being typed. <laughs> it's fine. And you know what? We could go super postmodern and just totally ignore them like they don't exist. Because what is really an email? You know what I mean? Yeah, or we could a really postmodern email reply would be, you know, I read your email and here's what I think. And just stop at T-H-I-N. Yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> that would be great. So um, we're we're this is going to be fun. We're talking about postmodernism, and just, this is one of those things where we have to define it from the outset. Which is the the problem with postmodernism is figuring out how to define it. And before we go any further, I, every hat I own right now. I'm taking off for Dave Roos, who helped us put this together. He did a great job. He did a wonderful job. Like it was not fair something. to throw this at him. <laughs> no, I, want, I was really interested to see what he would do, and he did. He really rose to the occasion. I, I, like he I did agree. a great job. Smashing so, job. He he kind of started with uh, this um, anecdote about uh, a a student of an art professor who asked his class, like, you know, what is is postmodernism? How do you define it? And um, the student said basically something that the professor later ripped off, which is um, it's where you put quotations around everything. Yeah. Yeah. It almost feels cynical in a way. Yes. A hundred percent. Doesn't it? A million percent. Like the age of cynicism. Remember the sarcasm of the 90s? Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah, know, that went away. <laughs> the, right. Yeah, exactly. You exactly. just did it. So um, <laughs> all of that, all of that is 100% the fabric, the cultural fabric of, of postmodernism. It's, it's, as we'll see, a tearing down, not just institutions and authorities and all that stuff, but other people. It, just doing it is like just the most casual thing in the world, just tearing down. That is the cultural basis of postmodernism. Yeah, like if someone were to talk about Andy Warhol's soup cans, they can say, well, that's his truth in reality, but you would put that in quotes. Right. With your hands at a party. You put truth in quotes, you put reality in quotes, yeah. and that's what that student was saying. You put everything in quotes because the the philosophical basis of postmodernism is that there is no such thing as universal truth. There's no such thing as reality. Like your you could reality put soup cans in quotes. You could. You, you could know? even if you wanted to be a total jerk, you could do soup in quotes and cans in quotes. And Andy Warhol in quotes. Right. So, and Andy Warhol would love it. He would oh, roll over in his grave, but it'd be like a dance move more than something out of agony, you yeah. know? So, so um, that's kind of what the, what the student was saying. You put everything in quotes because nothing is, there is no universal truth. And mm-hmm. that is where postmodernism broke from its immediate predecessor, which is modernism, which said, no, there's all sorts of universal truths. And that carried on an even longer tradition of the idea that there's universal truths and we can try to find these through different ways. Right. And with modernism, it was like, let's not use religion, let's use reason. And it's like a post-enlightenment sort of frame of mind yeah, where we can figure out these universal truths and we can apply them to our artworks, whether it's literature or, you know, uh, any kind of visual art. Right, right. So, um, So with modern art, it, as weird it, as it can seem, as abstract as it can seem, um, 
what they were doing really ultimately at base followed in the tradition of like the romanticists before them, of the Renaissance painters before them. They were all trying to move toward what's called sublime sensibility, which is this idea that there is a universal truth. There is universal beauty. There is universal like happiness. Like the nature is a universal. It's shared in common to all people. It exists in and of itself. And they just kind of chose a different way of going after that rather than painting like cherubs and the most amazing clouds you can possibly come up with, you know, behind the crucifixion of Christ or something. They tried to evoke it through those shapes and colors and abstract paintings. Um, But they were still at base after the same thing, which was uncovering that universal truth of, of like beauty. Right. And then, you know, I took, we talked about it before, I took a philosophy class in college that uh, both blew my mind and I just didn't even understand, but I tried. Uh I think I actually made an A in it because I tried really, really, really hard in that class. (laughs) Nice. Uh, No, kids, I tried hard in every class. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But especially hard in philosophy. But I remember studying Nietzsche and some of it hitting home a little bit in that even though Nietzsche was for sure like pre- postmodernism as far as uh, an era is defined, but had these thoughts of postmodernism in that Nietzsche came along and said, you know what, it, it's, there's, there are perspectives. There is not a universal truth because we are all individuals and we all have our own unique perspective on what beauty might be or what truth might be or reality might be. Mm-hmm. So that I remember that speaking to me some more than, I guess, the modernist thought. Yeah, because it makes sense. It's that that whole kind of thing like, what is the color green to you? It's not the same to me. Or if you look at an apple on a table and then you move around the table, the apple changes shape. So depending literally on your perspective, you see things differently. And so what Nietzsche was saying is that if you, if you take that and multiply it by however many billion people are on the planet— mm-hmm. How can there possibly be such a thing as a shared reality? How can there possibly be such a thing as a universal truth? There can't. It's just not possible because not only do people see things differently, they have different experiences in their lives that alter perception even more minutely. It's just too complex. Humans and then collectively humanity is too complex to have universal truths. And so that was kind of the basis of his perspectivism that you were talking about. And then in in turn, by proxy, he said, well, then that means that all of these meta-narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves, they're meaningless. They can't be true either. Yeah. So what postmodernism would end up becoming is a rejection of modernism, and that would play out across all kinds of different kind of art forms that we're going to talk about in a little bit, mm-hmm. but philosophically as well, because if if science and reason bring us world war and nuclear bombs, then there's going to be, I think, a, a tendency to reject that. Yeah. So kind of like, <clears throat> I think we talked about it before, I don't remember in what episode, but that World War One was like, it revealed the full horror of just putting all of your faith in science and reason that like it would lead to technology that led to destruction. And then that was followed up by World War II and the Holocaust. Um, it, it was followed up by things like lobotomies and phrenology and, um, and just mass destruction, the nuclear bomb. All of this stuff came from the application of science and reason faithfully, unerringly. And so postmodernism said, you know, we, we need to get rid of this completely and, and totally. We need to tear it all down and start over. So the whole movement started out as a response, a reactionary response to the horrors of a different movement. And I think anytime you have a movement that's, that's born out of um, a, re, a recoiling, a repellent response to something, yeah. it's going to be reckless. And I think in that sense, postmodernism is and always has been reckless because, again, it's all about tearing down. And it started with tearing down all of the pillars and the golden calves of, of modernism. Well, reckless or free? Both. It's definitely both. All right. I think it's, I think it's very much both because I think, you know, as we'll see later on, Postmodernism ultimately led to its own horrors that we're living with today, and um, it was out of recklessness, I think. Okay. I think. The digital age? That's part of it, for sure. Should we take a break? 
I think your dog says so. Did you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) It is National Pet Day. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey everybody, we're here to tell you about Viator, a tool that you can use to plan and book travel experiences around the world. That's right. The Viator app and website make it easy to explore 300,000 plus travel experiences so you can discover what's out there no matter where you're traveling or what you're interested in. Yep. Viator can help you plan better travel experiences. 300,000 plus travel experiences to choose from means you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. That's right. You can also enjoy real traveler reviews to get insider information from people who've already been on the experience that you're considering. Plus, you get free cancellation that helps you plan for the unexpected. Yeah. And Viator offers 24-7 customer service, so you know you'll get support at any hour if things aren't going as planned. So download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find the perfect travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, we're back. My dog barked again to signal us. And uh, I guess we should just go ahead and say that the term itself, uh, postmodernism, was uh, coined by a French philosopher named Jean-Francois. How, how would you pronounce that? Is it Leotard? Leotard or Leotard? 
Okay. Uh, and this was in 1979. So, you know, people put the postmodern era, again, we, there's, there are fuzzy numbers, but I've generally m- mostly seen sort of mid-1950s to ni- early 1970s is kind of the beginning. Right. Uh, and so this was in 1979 when it was actually defined uh, by Jean-Francois, who said, I define postmodern as incredulity toward meta narratives, mm-hmm. uh, which you already talked about, these sort of stories that we tell ourselves that sort of give structure to all of our existence. Yeah, it's like uh, I saw it explained as a uh, meta narrative is the blueprint that we carry out like our actions and our lives in. So that like without a blueprint, a plumber just laying pipe is just randomly laying pipe. There's no there's no point or reason to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But if they're following a blueprint, it gives it it gives their work meaning, guidance, there's a purpose to it. And so meta narratives can take all sorts of different forms from the free market is is going to um, you know deliver us all to like this prosperous, happy, progressive future to um, you know religion explains why we're here to um, basically any grand story that's like the big picture that's a meta narrative and we've got a lot of them and postmodernism said not a single one of those is legitimate. Uh, well, I don't know about legitimate, but not a single one of those is should be looked at as the truth. Okay. Like, I think they can be considered. Uh, but but the problem, I think, with modernism, or at least as far as a postmodernist goes, is that they laid claim that these are the universal truths. Okay. I think that was a very important nuance point that you're right. All right. I, I retract my original point. statement. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We need a ding, chuck right. one point. <laughs> Oh, that'll be my only ding. <laughs> I don't know, man. You've been dinging it up already. I just haven't used the sound effect. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's, you know, we talked about cynicism. It's also about skepticism, right? Yeah. So I think that's part of the sarcasm and the irony. When you are sarcastic towards somebody, when you're ironic about, you know, when you speak ironically about something, you're expressing skepticism that what that is is true or cool or real or anything, whatever whatever it is you're 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 saying, as long as it's sarcastic or ironic, it's it's a form of skepticism, and that that is kind of like the hallmark cultural um, uh, move. I think hallmark is good. <laughs> okay, that's the cultural ha- hallmark of postmodernism. I think S- irony and, and skepticism and, and sarcasm. Uh, okay, I agree with all that. Ding, <laughs> ding. <laughs> <laughs> or we need uh, Chris Hardwick on here just to say points. Oh, that's a good one. He, he what's he doing these days? He could probably do that. <sighs> I think he's still doing the the Talking Dead. No, I'm sure he does plenty. Yeah, he's a Brandon to himself. Yeah, he's like the Ryan Seacrest of podcasting. That's <laughs> sure. He probably podcasts too, though. Probably, but I think Chris Hardwick is still the Ryan Seacrest of podcasting. Should we talk about art, like painting and stuff? Yeah, yeah, because I think we laid the groundwork here. But let's just re- re- let's just go over this real quick one more time. Postmodernism is a recoil, repellent response to modernism, which produced all sorts of world wars and the nuclear bomb, and was based on authority figures and rigidity and universal truths. And you have to follow this, and you have to look at this this way. And if if you paint a different way outside of that, it's not really art. And the art world was one of the very first outside of philosophy, to kind of rebel against that. Um, The idea that there's anybody who could say, that's art, that's not art. And one of the first people to really do that was um, the Dadaist Marcel Duchamp. Yeah, so here's the thing with talking about eras of art. If you look at some of Duchamp's work, in particular, uh, we should just go ahead and reference probably one of the most famous, which was what he called a ready-made, which mm-hmm. was to take, in this case, uh, a urinal, the, you know, not built a urinal, but take a, a mass-produced urinal, mm-hmm. signed a name on it, uh, a pen name in this case was R. Mutt, M-U-T-T, and it called it Fountain in 1917. And right. this was a piece of art. And if you look at this piece of art, it is decidedly postmodern. But it was made, uh, what, five to six decades before anyone would define art as postmodern art. And it lives, like, 
squarely in the middle. I don't know about the middle, but it lives squarely in the modern art movement. Mm-hmm. So, like the 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 difference between and I read a lot about this between modern art and postmodern art is philosophical. It's also like uh, cultural in that it was mainly men uh, who were making the art. Uh, the postmodern art really brought along different uh, cultural perspectives and female perspectives. Mm-hmm. It was also, I read, uh, very goal-oriented, whereas postmodern art cared more about process. Apparently, modern art was very much still goal-oriented, even though they saw it as a rejection of the the still life of the bowl of fruit on the table before mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the work still sort of echoed that kind of thing. And then you have Duchamp coming along with his toilet, which is completely postmodern, but lives in a modern era. Right. And and like you were saying, like he he came decades before the postmodern era in exactly the same way that Nietzsche was to, was laying the foundation for postmodernism sure. and philosophy and culture decades before the postmodern era too, even further back than that. But there's just no way of looking at, at Duchamp's work any other way than this is a postmodern artwork. And not just that one, the fountain. Like that was his like bread and butter was using these ready-mades. And that was a huge foundation of the actual postmodern art movement that came later, which was, first of all, tearing down the, the distinction between high art and low art because Duchamp was a serious artist exhibiting in serious galleries and museums and things like that. But he was also buying urinals, signing them, and calling it art. So in one way, that makes it like way more accessible to you and me. It makes it less scary, like art's less scary. You don't have to be an expert to come into the art world now and appreciate art or laugh at art or take your, you know, let the art, you know, um, like stop taking life quite so seriously. Um, But at the same time, it also, the fact that he went and bought something, he paid for something from a plumbing supply company that was mass produced, also laid the foundation for guys later like Andy Warhol, who melded consumerism into art to create pop culture, which opened the door for commoditization of art, which then opened the door for what we live in today, which is like art is advertising, basically. Like there's almost no distinction whatsoever. It's everywhere and it's hijacked to sell things as much as it is to to actually make art or make something beautiful or good or thought-provoking. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I think that the transition to postmodern art is really interesting because it opened it to different classes. Uh, modern art was was almost exclusively based in Europe and, and Russia, I guess, uh, whereas postmodern art after World War II, things really uh, – I mean, you could say all of the West basically was taking part. Uh, but just sort of outsider art and conceptual art and to things to we, where we have today, we're like, well, someone will – will put a pile of sunflower seeds in the middle of the floor and call it art. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that is the postmodern sort of rejection of what was already, I think, a pretty radical departure as far as the art world is concerned with modern art. Because when you have people like Jackson Pollock or, you know, uh, Picasso or the Cubist stuff, th- there was already, uh, I-, I think a lot of that stuff was a little bit slower to accept from sort of the traditional, you know, pre-modern art critics. Right. So postmodern just blew that, blew past it. It definitely did. And then, so Warhol comes along and creates pop art, and everybody starts definitely riffing on that vibe. But one of the other hallmarks of postmodern art is borrowing and remixing, mm-hmm. mashing up other styles, other types of art from different eras, different media, um, and just kind of mixing it together in a brand new way. That's one of the hallmarks of postmodern art as well. Yeah, I love that uh, David Byrne quote you sent because he's a uh, sort of the quintessential postmodern uh, musician. Mm-hmm. And he, he said he was all about the, the mashing up and the mixing up of things. And it was just sort of a, a really free and creative time. So he was all about it, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, especially now today, the world we live in, postmodernism has like a really bad name, almost across the board to everybody. But there was definitely a time where it was like glorious and beautiful and fun. And David Byrne was definitely there for that heyday, for sure. Uh, Can we talk about a couple of these other famous postmodern works? Yeah. 
The Treachery of Images is another one. Uh, and again, I think this was in the modern era, technically, but it was, it was, it was one of the first seeds of what was to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was from René Marguerite, and it is the very famous picture of a pipe, a smoking pipe, uh, with a caption uh, in French. Uh, it says, this is not a pipe. But what would that be in French, my French-speaking friend? Ce n'est pas une pipe. <laughs> he sounded literally like the Google person on, or the YouTube translator. <laughs> Josh says. I did not know you had that as a, as a moonlighting job. I do. And I'm making almost no money off of it. But it's still, it's a labor of love. Uh, but this is a great example of what was to come with postmodernism, which is, here's a picture of a pipe. It's clearly a pipe. But it says, this is not a pipe. Because perspective, baby. This is that's not my reality. There is no objective truth. Yeah, that's another thing that postmodernism kind of came along and warned everybody about is us putting all of our faith and in, in just casual trust in the images and words that we've created to create our culture, right? Yeah. So Magritte was saying, and this is like quintessential postmodernism, that this is not a pipe. It's a picture of a pipe. You can't trust it. You can't use it. You can't stuff it with tobacco and smoke it. Don't call it a pipe. It's not really a pipe. And um, that kind of like postmodern thought where there was no real meaning to pictures, images, words, sounds, aside from what we ascribe to them, it, it kind of eventually morphed into this weird thing where we got really comfortable with that, you know, David Byrne idea of remixing everything, of using these different things and these different codes to create new meanings. But at the same time, we were simulating reality in different ways. And so eventually we started to lose the ability to distinguish between reality, like anything approaching what we would call like real reality and simulated reality, which was all the words and images and pictures that we just kind of take for granted are real, but actually aren't. They're all just symbols um, that we've stopped seeing as symbols. And so what what postmodernism was warning about, what Magritte was warning or, or kind of reminding us of, ended up subverting itself and creating an inability in us here living today to, to distinguish between simulated reality and real reality. Because how, when's, I mean, you're a terrible example of this, but the Thank average you. person out there, when's uh-huh. the last time you actually went out in the woods? Oh, sure. It's probably That's been a true. really long time. When's the last time you saw a video or an image of the woods? Mm. And to your brain, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I've probably been in the woods pretty recently. No, you haven't. You haven't been in the woods in years. <laughs> you saw it on TV last week. That's the most recent <coughs> brush with the woods that you've had. That's what is, has been the result of postmodernism. And it's interesting that they were originally warning about it and then came to kind of throw us throw the shackle on all of us. Yeah, I like this other example because I think this um, – I think when uh, people of the time might have seen Magritte's This Is Not a Pipe, I'm sure like your average person might just say, what are you even talking about with this? Yeah. Or somebody might see that today and say that. But totally. in the in the 60s, Dave uh, found this other great example that uh, very much evokes that This Is Not a Pipe work from Joseph uh, Kosuth, uh, One in Three Chairs. And I think this one – is more likely to get through to someone who doesn't may not typically understand this kind of philosophy, uh, which is it's a real folding chair. And then it's flanked by a black and white uh, photograph of that same exact folding chair. <laughs> and then a placard with a dictionary definition of chair. And I think this is a little more accessible for your average Joe to maybe come up and say, oh, I get what they're doing here. Like, I might not fully understand it, but like, I see what they mean. This is a chair, and this is a chair, and this is a chair. Plus, it's not in French. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It automatically makes it more accessible to the average chair. Yeah. How would you say that in French? Do you even know? One in three chairs? Uh, Un uh, tres chairs. (laughs) Is it chairs? I haven't gotten to that on my YouTube channel yet. Um, so, no, I can't remember what chair is, um, but I'll bet some people are going to write in and tell us. Yeah, but, you know, what all of this did was, in speaking in terms of, like, this kind of visual art, is it opened the doors not only for different cultures and different people and different classes and races and and uh, men and women and all across the gender spectrum to open up their minds and create, but it was 
uh, a lot of times it was shocking and it, it allowed them to really push the boundaries of what art could even be, which was yeah, a new thing. I was reading up, do you remember the huge controversy in the late 80s? It turned out to be 1987. I didn't remember that. But um, with that image, Piss Christ. I don't remember that. It was an enormous thing. The National Endowment of the Arts got its funding slashed as a result because it turned out, so this artist, I can't remember his name, but he did a a photo series of a crucifix in different, like, different like body fluids, like his own blood. Um, And this one was submerged in his own urine. Um, And it's actually pretty until you realize what you're looking at. And it set a lot of Christians, including Jesse Helms, off. Yeah. And they went uh, they went crazy on the National Endowment of the Arts. This artist lost a bunch of funding. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. And it was it it brought to the fore this kind of culture clash of no one especially not Jesse Helms, can say what's art and what's not art. This artist has created something, and he says this is art. It's art. And that in and of itself is a very postmodern way of looking at things. And also, you know, it turned out the the artist himself was like a devout Catholic. He didn't mean it blasphemously at all. That was was designed to provoke, I'm sure. It was. I can't remember exactly what his purpose of it was, but I don't think he meant anything to happen like it happened. Right. But um but even that that's just beside the point. The point was there were there was a fight over what's art and you know a lot of the um arch conservatives won that fight by slashing the National Endowment of the Arts and giving it a bad name because it's federally as it's a federally funded agency, and so taxpayer money was going right. into it. Taxpayers who didn't think that was art at all didn't want right. their money going to it. And right. it was quite a big kerfuffle, but it was super postmodern while it was happening. Right. And they were like, what's wrong with a bowl of fruit on a table? Can't we just paint that forever? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everyone loves the bowls of fruit. Uh, how about some more of those Georgia O'Keeffe flowers? <laughs> I love those for some reason I can't quite put my finger on. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Uh, should we take a break or should we talk about literature then take a break? Uh, that's up to it's up to your your doggy. All right, all right. Nico says go forward with literature. Okay, cool. Uh, modernist, uh, the modernist movement with, liter- with literature featured uh, people like Joyce and Virginia Woolf, and this is again sort of with modern art boundaries were being pushed in different directions from. Uh, sort of the old school of literary styles. Uh, all of a sudden, you had stream of consciousness happening, uh, nonlinear, uh, nonlinear narratives happening. Mm-hmm. This is where free verse poetry was born. But then postmodernists came along and they went, oh, you think that's pushing the boundaries? <laughs> uh, it, let me introduce you to Thomas Pynchon and Joseph Heller mm-hmm. and people like this who really took things to an nth degree uh, to the point where you found that one book that just stopped in the middle of the first chapter over mm-hmm. and over. <laughs> yeah, there's a book by Italo Calvino uh, called If on a Winter's Night, a Traveler. It's from 1979. It's a quintessential postmodern novel in, in that it's written in the second person perspective. So we, he talks about you. So you're the main character. Mm-hmm. And it starts out by saying, you're about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel, If on a Winter Night, a Traveler. Relax, concentrate, dispel every other thought. So the author is directing you, the reader, to begin the novel that mm-hmm. you're reading. So you're immediately the character. Like he's writing about you in this page. Yeah. And then it very quickly careens from what you would consider real. Like the book runs out on page 32 in the book. The but book you're actually reading still goes it. on. Yeah. It's just in the book that happens. So now you, the character, have to go to the bookstore and you get another version and you end up reading 10 different beginnings to the same book. But the upside of it is you fall in love with Ludmila, the book, uh, the bookstore shopkeeper as right. well. So there's, it's, it just, it's completely out of left field and you could say absurd and that is quintessentially postmodern too. They weren't, James Joyce wasn't doing anything quite like that. No, not at all. And this is where I, you know... I have an appreciation for it. I think very clever. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> but I would rather read a good novel from okay. beginning to end with a great you, story. So that, Chuck, that is a real criticism of postmodernism. Sure. Because everything ha- everything's meaning is up for grabs. It's up in the air. There's no universal truth. And if you if you can put meaning in air quotes as well, mm-hmm. that that means by proxy that 
everything is meaningless in a certain way of looking at it. And so, yeah, it's cool. That was an interesting thing, and it kind of was clever. Um, but it, it is it is it as satisfying? Is it as meaningful as, like you said, a good novel? Um, or, you know, like an actual novel that follows like maybe a little more structure rules. Some people would say no, but a lot of people would say yes. And they sure. would point to the idea that there's this kind of nihilistic bent in postmodernism in every form, whether it's visual art, film, um, novels, that, that makes it less important in a way. And again, I personally think it's because postmodernism was born as a repellent response to a long-standing thing and that it was it immediately it was automatically born on shaky reckless ground and that yeah. how can you create something beautiful if you don't think there is such a thing as beauty how can you create something meaningful if you don't think there is such a thing as meaning and if there is no such thing as meaning then stop writing because you're just doing that for money now at this point Right, which I think was the goal-oriented movement of modern art. It didn't specifically say, but what uh, what else would the goal be? Right. Rather than to have a showing and sell paintings. Yes. Uh, some of the other sort of elements of postmodern literature, one is paradox and randomness. Uh, books like Slaughterhouse-Five and Catch-22, you started seeing um, – and even though there were nonlinear narratives before, you found stories that were really told out of order at this point, and mm -hmm. that even had facts that don't align with one another, where you might say, well, that doesn't even make sense sometimes, according to what I had previously read, like even earlier in the same book or chapter, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes purposefully obfuscating meaning or disorienting the reader. Uh, and then this whole idea of intertextuality, which is in like sort of the mashup that David Byrne was talking about, but in this case with literature, incorporating uh, plot lines and characters from other works or other tropes and literary ideas, uh, kind of bringing them all into one book. Yeah, like a, a good example of that is not found in literature, but in TV, um, in the character of John Munch, who's a detective who started out as a detective on the TV show Homicide, Life on the Street. And then that same character appeared on Law and Order SVU. He, he was a recurring longtime character on that show, right? So is it the same uh, actor? Yes, sa same actor, same character. It's, is this part of the St. Elsewhere universe theory? Yes, yes. The <laughs> Tommy really? Westfall, yeah, the Tommy Westfall universe. Yeah, John Munch is like one of the fulcrums of that universe. Oh, wow. Because he's also been on X-Files. He's also okay. been on The Wire. Like, he's this character that people, like, love and, and love to bring into their own show, even though they had nothing to do with homicide life on the street. And so that's a really good example of intertextuality. This character keeps popping up in different works, and it's the same character. And in him appearing there, it's saying this show exists in the same universe as this show. And yes, you can all trace it back to the, the saying elsewhere finale, which I think we talked about in our Nutso Fan Theories episode. Yeah, Tarantino does that a lot too. Mm -hmm. Uh with the Vega brothers, and uh, I think that was... Uh, Red Apple Cigarettes. Yeah, and there was a character in Jackie Brown that was also in, uh, I can't think of his name, one of the FBI guys. Michael Keaton played him in mm -hmm. Out of Sight. But I think that was a recurring character in different... W without any real sort of... Um, it's not like, you know, uh, Alfred from Batman appearing in different Batman movies. It's It's sort of out-of-context intertextuality, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And then also, Tarantino is a good example of postmodernism as far as, like, pastiche, which is just such an obnoxious word. But once you look into it, it's basically just borrowing other styles yeah. and kind of, in the postmodern sense, mashing them together. So Tarantino is, like, crazy about, like, 70s kung fu stuff or 70s gangster flicks. Right. And he would, he would use those. He would actually take characters who were based on those other eras and those other styles and put them all into the same movie, into the same universe together. Um, that's pastiche, and that's another very postmodern thing. Wes Anderson is another good example. His, like, just unparalleled love of mid-century, like, looks and design. Yeah. That's a pastiche. Although it turns out he's a post-postmodern director in almost every sense of the word. Yeah, I mean, I think Pulp Fiction is very commonly referred to as sort of one of the hallmarks of postmodern filmmaking in that uh, not only the, the, the mashups, but the nonlinear uh, storytelling, 
the good guys are bad guys, bad guys are good guys, the sort of rejection of um of purpose, like, you know, what's in the what's in the briefcase. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a very non uh, and I think that's why I, I never really cared that much, but I think it's why I drove a lot of people crazy because as filmgoers were so trained to have to know what's in that briefcase <laughs> right. because it should have some sort of meaning. And he was kind of turned it on its ear a little bit. And then everybody copied for the next decade Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and there were so many bad sort of bad. half ripoffs made. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say any. There's one I could call out, but I'm not going to. Ooh. Mm-hmm. You to but text it to me or something. I will. But okay. um, have you seen Severance on Apple TV? Yeah, I'm about halfway through. I love it. <sighs> it's so it's so good. That's like a good example of that leaving people wanting more and just absolutely yeah. not giving it to them. Like, sorry, yeah. it's it like no, there's no resolution. It's just crazy um, how how strung out you feel after after the last episode <laughs> oh boy i can't wait uh yeah. all right i think we should oh shoot we're we got to take our second break now yeah we definitely do and we'll talk a little bit more about film and sum this all up maybe sure all right we'll be right back Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 251292887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend 
or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, so Pulp Fiction is routinely uh, singled out as a postmodern film. The the one that's considered probably the the godfather of all of them um, is Eight and a Half by Fellini, <laughs> Federico Fellini. I've never seen it. Have you? Uh, yeah, sure. Godfather, not in, in the movie sense, <laughs> right? So, so we don't confuse everybody. I think you just did. I think you planted that about forty minutes ago. I might have. Uh, yeah, I've seen Eight and a Half. It's if you've taken any sort of film appreciation class in college, you're going to see it. Uh, it's Fellini's, you know, one of Fellini's masterpieces. Uh, the whole movie could be described as a metafiction because it's a film about making a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really good. It's it's dreamy and trippy. And confusing. It's full of a lot of dream uh, dream sequences, and reality and fiction are blurred. Uh, highly recommend seeing Eight and a Half, and then like reading a lot about it afterward. I so love you can that. Make sense about it. That's one of my favorite types of movies. Is a movie that you can watch and then go find a bunch of like um, l- uh, like film crit on it. Yeah. That that explains it or points it out. It just discusses it. I love that kind of thing. I finally saw Casablanca. By the way. Oh, great. What'd you think? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not going to say like, eh, medium. Um, <laughs> it was it was really good. I, d- mm-hmm. I would not put it among like the best films I've ever seen or ever made. But even as a mainstream film? Yeah, I th- yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was really, really good. But I definitely didn't see like, oh my God, this is the best film I've ever seen type of feeling. Yeah, I think it's, I think people leave out that it's one of the best mainstream films ever made of the, you know, first half or yeah i guess the first half of the century or the middle of the century i would even expand it out to i loved it i think it's just a great movie but i I really enjoyed it it finally but it was uh i think maybe the expectation it's sort of like when i saw uh citizen kane for the first time after so much build-up it really delivered on that as far as i think just breaking boundaries of filmmaking and raising the bar and i don't feel like casablanca did that i thought it was kind of just a normal really good movie yeah very normal and mainstream, but yeah. a good one. Agreed. <laughs> so, um, so eight and a half. It's, it's like you said. It's a meta meta narrative, basically. Um, and anytime you see something like dreamy or weird or um, people play themselves or strange versions of themselves, you have stumbled into a, a postmodern film. Um, a really good example of that is basically everything um, Charlie Kaufman's ever written or directed. Yeah. Oh boy. Like Synecdoche, Synecdoche, New York is probably <laughs> one of the most postmodern films ever made. But then yeah. also, so is like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But people are like, this is not truly postmodern in every sense. But it's it, it checks enough boxes that you could say that's definitely a postmodern film. Same with um, being John Malkovich. Yeah, that's an adaptation. Yep. I mean, that's the currency he deals in. Mm-hmm. I still haven't seen the, the most recent one with Jesse Plemons. I've, I got to check that out. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, is that what it's called? Yeah, I think so. I saw the the Nicolas Cage movie that's coming out. I, saw oh, I it ended see up that. at a screener. Was it good? It is very good, but it's it's very postmodern too. Like uh-huh. Nicolas Cage plays himself, um, and it's just completely off the rails from time to time. And in a lot of ways, it reminded me of adaptation, where it like purposefully goes off the rails to like make a point, like adaptation did. Uh huh. Um. And so it borrowed from that, and it didn't, you know, it, it certainly seemed that way even more because Nicolas Cage is in it. But uh, it's pretty, it's pretty good movie. It's worth seeing for sure. And, you know, shout out while we're d- uh, off track. Uh, I just saw the Nicolas Cage movie Pig. Oh, yeah? From last year uh, about a, a former chef who is a, a truffle hunter mm-hmm. uh, and is trying to find his pig. And uh, Stuff You Should Know listener, I believe, because he was a movie crush listener, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Sarnowski directed that movie. Oh, neat. I've heard good things about it. It's fantastic. That's awesome. It's really, really good. So I will definitely check it out then. All right. Let's wrap this up, I guess. Uh, should we talk about, uh, I don't know, criticisms? 
Sure. Also, we just need to, to definitely give a shout out. Postmodernism and architecture is also a thing. Um, it, like it's, shout it's, out it's to almost, Frank Gehry. <laughs> right. It's almost its own track. But it had an even more abrupt change than, say, like film or art did. Like it's just – it went from minimalist functional design to just take everything apart, tear it down, yeah. and put it back together in weird ways. And, yeah, Frank Gehry is the embodiment of the postmodern star architect is what they call him. Yeah, and I think if you want to um, – a good example, if you want to look at uh, modern versus postmodern, you can look at the two Guggenheims mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Frank Lloyd Wright in New York – to Gary's in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just in New York and went to the Guggenheim and saw the Kandinsky exhibit. Highly recommend going to that before it closes. Nice. Uh, or anything at the Guggenheim, because just being in that building is, is quite an experience. Still have never been. Oh, my God. You're kidding. No. It's the best one. It's the it, best Guggenheim? It's my favorite museum in the world. Really? Yeah, because it's you're in and out in a couple of hours. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not intimidating. You just ascend up that circular ramp and see a lot of great art over a couple of hours, and then you're out of there. And the building itself is art. Very nice. Well, I'll it's, check it it's out. It's like then. going to the Met is uh, intimidating. Uh, the Guggenheim is not intimidating. I'm going to get super efficient and watch Pig and go to the Guggenheim in the same day. <laughs> totally should. Go to New okay. York. Don't watch a movie in New York. Watch it on the plane. There you go. I have to really select my airline carefully. Uh, all right. So criticisms of postmodernism, like you said, it is uh, a bit of a punching bag these days and maybe kind of always has been. But you have people from both sides of the political spectrum criticizing postmodernism, whether it's sort of the old school leftists who think like, no, it's, it has nothing to do with social progress. All this individualism is no good for our movement. Uh, to conservatism, conservatism, Mm-mm. conservatism, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is uh, we don't we do not like this whole there is no right or wrong. It's all about your perspective things because right. there is definitely right and wrong. Everybody, yes. Like, how can you ban a book when it's not demonstrably wrong for asserting a viewpoint <laughs> that's outside the norm? You know, that's a very good point. Yeah, so of course they don't like the idea of of moral relativism. But I was I was surprised that the leftists thought that until I learned that Leotard himself was basically like, um, yeah, there's there's this is this is a this is a strange new unhappy direction that we're going in, and it, they laid it at the feet of the failure of Marxism to kind of bring about like c- collective social progress. And then right. the response to that was Thatcher's and Reagan's. Um, neoliberal policies that basically said deregulate everything, make as much money as you can at the expense of whoever you need to, and let's let's go global, baby. Um, and that is part and parcel with postmodernism as far as economics is concerned. And if you're an economist and a philosopher and you're looking at postmodernism, probably to you, late capitalism and postmodernism are basically interchangeable words. Yeah. Um, and that's another reason why so many people are so sick of postmodernism because it there isn't anything right. There isn't anything wrong. There is no truth. There is no morality. It's just just get as rich as you can is a huge part of it too. The commodification of art really kind of laid the groundwork for that, and it's permeated everywhere, right? So now people say, okay, we're sick of postmodernism. We think it's dead. What's next? So, Chuck, what is next after postmodernism? Well, I certainly don't know, but uh, you sent along some interesting reading for me to ponder. Mm -hmm. And the general thought is that we are in in an era now of, uh, and again, it won't be probably defined until 10 to 20 years later, but hypermodernism, which is uh, what this article calls postmodernism on steroids, where advertising is art and where tech companies are the governments of the world, or mm-hmm. at least as influential as the governments of the world and the religions of the world, uh, or meta-modernism, um, which is not quite hyper-modernism, right? It's sort of uh, hearkening back to modernism. Yes, but with the with the um, 
the advantage of having seen the failures of modernism before and then having lived through postmodernism. So it's this idea that there is such a thing as, as beauty and truth and nature and that they are important and they matter and they're things we should move towards and that we should be positive and inclusive. So Ted Lasso is like a cartoonish embodiment of metamodernism. Yeah. And we see this this clash going on right now, Chuck. Like, there's a huge clash in, like, every kind of culture war. It's between people who are saying, like, no, we need to keep extracting and consuming. And other people are like, no, we need to go a different tract and, like, say, save the planet or whatever. And some philosophers say this is the split that postmodernism kind of broke into. And right now we're figuring out which direction we're going to go in, you know, save the planet. Uh, ruin the planet. Like, that kind of black and white choice is basically being laid out for us right now, and that's our place in history. And no one has any idea which one's going to win out. Although some people say hypermodernism already has. Like, you just... We're just too much slaves to our devices. And we're, like, we've just been co-opted by technology too deeply already to, to get ourselves out of it. Other people say not so fast, including Ted Lasso. (laughs) <laughs> well, all of the stuff that you sent me about metamodernism made me finally understand uh, one of my favorite singer, uh, country artist Sturgill Simpson's first record was called Metamodern Sounds in Country Music. Hmm. And now that title makes more sense to me hmm. than it ever did because he is a uh, a country singer who sort of defies the modern country singing movement uh, by hearkening back to another time. Uh, he's he's you know like a progressive liberal country singer, so that doesn't go over well in a lot of circles of country right. music. Yeah, is that fair to say? I think so. Uh, like when he got COVID and he was sort of speaking out about it, uh, I was reading Fox News comments about this, and people were like, "Who even is this guy? He's no country star. I've never even heard of him." Like, Field well, dress him like a deer. <laughs> that's because they don't play him on modern country music stations because he doesn't sing about tailgating. Uh, but his first record is called Meta Modern Sounds and Country Music, and it's fantastic. He yeah. sounds like a mashup of uh, Waylon Jennings and George Jones, if that tells you where he's coming uh, dude, from. Dude, how could you go wrong with that? Exactly. With a little bit of uh, Joan Baez thrown in. Yeah, why not? So, uh, Sergio Simpson is possibly the future, or um, Bitcoin mining is the other future. <laughs> It's our choice, everybody. Who knows where we'll end up, but we'll find out. All right. So that was postmodern. the surface. Yeah, we did. And that's the stuff you should know away. Uh, if you want to know more about postmodernism, there's a lot to go read about it. There's a lot to read about hypermodernism, metamodernism, post-postmodernism. It's really, really interesting rabbit holes to go down. Uh, you can make a hobby out of it. And uh, since I said you can make a hobby out of it, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to follow this up. Uh, This was about the short stuff about nose breathing and that you got a toothache from Mm -hmm. nose breathing. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is from a, quote, qualified dentist working in the UK. Nice. uh, Named Tom Park. Uh, Hey, guys. uh, I'll kind of skip the the greetings for length, but he goes on to say the maxillary. Maxillary? Maxillary. Maxillary. (laughs) The maxillary sinuses uh, usually referred to just as the sinuses sit next to the nose about in the region of your upper cheeks uh, and extend to the front of your face on either side of the nose. They're very close to the ends of the roots of your molars, premolars, and sometimes canines mm-hmm. where all the nerves supplying your teeth enter those teeth. When you have uh, sinusitis, uh, this can feel like a toothache even a couple weeks after the block, no symptoms have settled. And lots of people come to the dentist around wintertime with toothaches, which is ultimately put down to this phenomenon. Oh, man. I had it myself once, and the jog I went on was agonizing, mm. and my empathy for my patients grew considerably. That's nice. Uh, this can also occur when you breathe in very cold air through your nose, if that air then goes into the sinuses, but it's usually more transient. I hope this helps. Perhaps Josh should check uh, with his own dentist to see if he has cavities that need managing. Well, this was like a decade or so ago. What's the dentist's name? The qualified dentist? Tom Park. Thank you, Tom. Um, uh, this was at least, no, this is probably more like, oh my God, 20 years ago when it happened, thankfully. Oh, and okay. I definitely did have a cavity that needed to be filled back there. Um, uh, but I went to the dentist recently, Chuck, and get this. Yeah. My, um, my dentist said that she's going to need to raise my sinus 
And I was like, how do you raise a sinus? She said, well, they used to do it with the hammer and chisel. We still got the hammer and chisel, but we have a better way of doing it now that's less painful. But they used to go in and put like a chisel up under like your sinus and then tap it and actually <laughs> raise your sinus. It sounds medieval. Are you going to do it? To quote Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I'm going to have to because I, I need like a little bit of uh, bone put back there and they can't do it without raising the sinus. Ah, oh, man. I'll keep you posted. I'll be without my tooth, man. What's going on with us? I don't know. Like, we were genetically um, conferred with, with terrible teeth, I think. Uh, and by the way, Tom Park also says, uh, by the way, also your description of the audience in Manchester who didn't clap until the very end made me laugh out loud. Uh, as a man, CUNY and myself, I can tell you that we are not easily impressed. So good on you for earning that clap. And that yeah. is from a Dentist Tom Park. Go to Tom Park if you're... Anywhere in the UK, you should make that trip to see Tom. He's got the empathy. It's right. He loves Ted Lasso. Loves. Uh, if you want to be like Tom Park and write in about something we talked about, we love that kind of stuff. When somebody comes back and crosses a T or dots an I or adds an ellipse even, although we don't like the ellipses that much. Uh, and you can put that all into an e- email. Yeah. And send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. In Puerto Rico, there's adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. Get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico and that remind you why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island, it becomes a part of you. No passports required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.